and this is how I talk about it. It's the greatest opportunity facing humanity right now. If you think the internet was big, the internet revolution and what it's wrought in terms of new companies and all the benefits, and there are problems of course, but you know, changing the way we generate and use energy on a mass scale dwarfs the internet. It's the biggest opportunity out there. Hello friends, welcome to Let's Give a Damn, the podcast that inspires and equips you to give more dams than ever before. I'm your friend and host, Nick LaPara. A few months ago, I sat down in a swanky New York City hotel lobby for a cup of coffee with my guest today. We talked for an hour or two and I knew I had to have him on my podcast. He's a wonderful human with a heart of gold. Today, you'll get to virtually sit in on my conversation with Lou Blaustein. Now, I'm not a sports fan for the most part, but I am a Lou Blaustein fan. If you are a sports fan, however, you're going to want to listen very closely to our conversation. Lou spent most of his career doing all things sports, brand management, advertising, marketing, sponsorship sales, and the like. But 17 years ago, on 9-11-2001, everything changed for Lou. Now, that day changed a lot of things for a lot of people, probably for you as well. But you're about to hear more about why that date changed everything for Lou and what happened to his life and career since then. Let's put it this way. Our world is a much better place because of Lou and the work that he does. I'm so excited to share more with you right now. Shall we get into it? Once again, thanks so much for joining me today. And here's my conversation with Lou Blaustein. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. It's super great to have my friend Lou Blaustein on the podcast today. Lou, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, you are calling from your home in New York City. Uh, so excited to have you on. You and I first met, just to give some context for those listening, a mutual friend of ours, Linda, introduced us a few months ago. We met last time I was in the city at, uh, I was, you know, you said hotel lobby. I don't, I didn't know what to expect. It's a really nice hotel lobby at the Michelangelo in Midtown. Uh, we had coffee and I was blown away by our conversation. I mean, I think you're a really interesting person, first of all. But the things you... Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. The reasons... I didn't pay him to say that. No, you didn't. You didn't. That was free. Linda introduced us for some very specific reasons, and I was just so surprised at this area of, you know, for the sake of this podcast, giving a damn that I had not really thought about, because I explained to you in our conversation, I'm not a sports guy, and today we're going to talk about sustainability, sports, the environment, Um, and so you do a lot of work that I'm super excited about, and I can't wait to share... I have some questions, and we're going to share that with the podcast audience. But before we get to that, Lou, give me some context for who you are. Give me the people, places, things that made you who you are today. You can go back as far as you want in your story, but whatever comes to mind when I say share your story and help us get some context for who you are, just run with that and give us give us some context there. Got it. Uh, and thank you for this opportunity, Nick. And it was great to meet at uh, the Michelangelo and... I was really excited that you invited me to be on the podcast. So basically, I always wanted to work in sports from when I was like seven years old, but I also knew I was not a good athlete, so that wasn't going to be the way I'd get into it. Um, I became like a sports history and stats kind of geek. 
Um, and then I decided I wanted to get into sports casting, did it in college and a little bit after, but that's a very hard way to make a living as well. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to go into the sports business. Uh, and I got an MBA and it took a while, not the MBA, but getting into the sports business. I ended up working in advertising sales, sports marketing, uh, promotions for companies, some that you that the listeners probably have not heard of, and then one, Sports Illustrated and Sports Illustrated for Kids, uh, that the listeners have heard of. And I did that, and it was great, and I got to go to the World Series and the NBA Finals and, and all of that, and I was very happy in that world. In parallel, I would say I was a lowercase e environmentalist. My environmental interest did not nearly rise to the level of my sports passion, but I was a member of the Sierra Club and the Appalachian Mountain Club and went hiking and cycling and all of that. And it informed uh, my voting uh, decisions as well. And then everything kind of, not kind of, everything changed for me on 9-11-2001. And uh, it sounds really hokey, but it, it, it's worth a little bit of an explanation. I was working at SI Kids at the time and on that day, and I was very fortunate personally that I didn't lose anybody or know anybody in the buildings, uh, even though I was only a few miles up in Midtown. Anyway, but I felt like New York was my home. I grew up in, the, in suburban Connecticut, went to college in New Jersey. I've lived my whole life around here, and I felt like I had to do something, but I didn't know what that something should be. And then about five months later, I think, or so, uh, Tom Friedman, whom you probably know of and have read in the New York Times, the, the yes. geopolitical columnist and author, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning author, he wrote a column, the headline of which was green is the new red, white, and blue. Mm. And uh, it sounds hokey, but that really stopped me in my tracks. And the column in it, uh, he made the point that we in the U.S. at that time were 4% of the world's population, 25% of the world's energy use, and we were fueling the wars on terror that we were beginning to fight. We were already in Afghanistan. The drumbeat for Iraq was growing by our insanely profligate energy use. And he made the analogy, and not even the analogy, he, he basically painted this picture of the U.S. sending its energy revenue to places like Saudi Arabia and the Saudi royal family wanting to stay in power as the Saudi royal family would take some of that money and divert it off to its Wahhabi extremists in a way to buy them off so they mm. could remain in power. And the Wahhabis would take some of that money and train people to fly planes into buildings. Wow. And it was like the compact fluorescent light bulb went on above my head. LEDs were not really in vogue then. And I, so I came to green, not from climate change, that came later, but from a, from a patriotic point of view. So I went out and bought a hybrid car. I was an early adapter on that in 2002. Wow, that was early on. Yeah. I changed out all my light bulbs. Um, I went eventually 90 to 95% vegetarian with the idea that meat-based products take eight to 10 times as much energy to get to your plate as plant-based. Uh, and then living in New York City, you can get get around easily without having a car. So eventually, I 
I went carless. Uh, but all of that is great from, you know, personally greening up your life. Great. But I felt like I had to do something more. So I needed to do it with my work, but I wasn't really sure what that meant. Um, because as I poked around, I found that most green jobs were technical in nature and you really don't want me anywhere near a solar installation. Let's <laughs> just say that not at all. And, uh, but I thought, okay, I'm good at selling. I'm good at evangelizing selling. I'm good at telling a, a story for a point of view. I'm good at providing value and I'm good at communicating. Someone's going to need this in this green world. So long story short, by 2005, I decided, you know what, I'm going to create myself as a sustainability sales, business development, marketing, communications consultant. And so I left SI Kids and that's what I did. And I've been doing that since then. So that's 12, almost 13 years now, which is amazing um, how time flies. And then about 2009-ish, I started thinking, hey, what if there was an intersection of green and sports? Mm. How cool would that be given that that would be the marriage of my two passions? So I started poking around again and I found out that there was something called the Green Sports Alliance and it's kind of nascent stages, which was basically at the time, uh, the pro sports teams in Portland, Oregon, Seattle and Vancouver convening and kind of sharing better practices on things like energy efficient light bulbs, recycling, investigating, composting on site, et cetera, et cetera. And so I started following that and started digging into this uh, growing but not well-known uh, niche of green sports. And then in 2013, I decided to write a blog called Green Sports Blog with the idea being that I would then get to meet everybody in the green sports niche uh, and, and get consulting work from that. P.S. I had never written a blog before. I didn't know anything about it, but I just started to do it. Yeah. And, you know, now it's become a thing in the green sports world. And so that kind of gets you sort of close to the present. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. I, I love I, there's a very it seems like intentional progression happening there. But what I love about it is your intention, your uh, you didn't wait around. You were you were a leader, as you stated several times in that story. You did things that weren't popular or cool at the time. Two thousand two was not when people were thinking about hybrid cars. There's still a bunch of people that still aren't thinking about hybrid cars, right? Hey, when I went to the dealer to buy the hybrid car and I shopped around, I knew more than the salespeople did. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, it just wasn't a thing. And so you have clearly taken leadership in these very environmental moves that you've made in your life. So I, I love that. So let's talk uh, sports for a second, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm, sure. uh, I shared in our conversation, I played a lot of sports growing up. When I lived in Guatemala growing up, I was on the Guatemalan Little, Little League national team, their national team. I, I played football, the real football, you know, every single day growing up. And so I, I, w I was very sports oriented growing up, baseball and football mainly. But then somewhere in my late teens, early 20s, I lost it all. Like, I just don't, I just don't care for sports anymore. And this, there, that's a longer conversation for a different day. But I'm not very in tune with the sports world. I'll go see a game. 
Um, you know, if, if, if the opportunity arises, I probably won't watch one at home. It's just not my thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people listening sports is there. It's, it's similar to you. It's their passion. It's their life. They're on. In fact, I'm sitting in the living room of, uh, recording this one of my buddy's houses. I'm using it as a, as a kind of a temporary studio and he loves sports. I mean, he just loves it. He devours them. Um, and so I know that that's a real thing out there. And so for everybody that loves sports and really just any human, because sports are such a big thing in, in this country and, and around the world, what is the impact? Like you got into, you know, you tried to see if there was an intersection between green and sports, right? And there obviously is, as we talked it out over our, our coffee a couple months ago. So explain that. What is the intersection here and how big, What what is the, how massive is this issue? First of all, the actual carbon emissions that are generated by sports events themselves are relatively speaking low to industrial production say sure, right. or manufacturing or what have you however the impact of sports you know is far above the emissions that are that are actually produced so the thesis of the green sports movement, which is, you know, less than a decade old, is that sports is where people, humans convene, and it is the biggest convener of humans, both in terms of physically at stadiums and other venues, and also even a much bigger audience that doesn't go to games, but follows it on television, on the internet, and even Luddites like me who actually hold a newspaper and read it um, and other forms of media. 65 to 70% of humans are sports fans of one degree or another, from the, from the casual fan who watches the Super Bowl, the Olympics, and the World Cup, or some, something like that, to the people who you know, are, are face painters and, and you know, are on hold with a sports for two hours to talk to a sports talk. Uh, radio host. So, and it, all you have to do to understand the appeal, the, the the hold that sports has, is that there's been a lot of in the media about the decline in ratings of the NFL because of a variety of reasons in the in in the last year or two or three. Yeah, that's true. But ad rates and sponsorship rates for the NFL and the price of owning a team continues to go up. Why? Because every entertainment form has lost audience as the choices have mushroomed over the last 30, 40 years for, for someone to watch on TV or on the internet. You have almost infinite choice. So there is no mass convening place except that sports has held its audience much better than anything else. So we start there. And we start also that with that power the platform of sports has been a place where social change has happened, even if it wasn't intentional. I mean, you can go back 70 years to Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier, which of course sports said no blacks. And then Branch Rickey said, no, we're going to change. And that changed the world. That was before 10 years or so before Rosa Parks wrote, rode the bus more years before the civil rights act. You can look at, Muhammad Ali and his op opposition to the Vietnam War. You can look at Billie Jean King and equal rights for women um, and also gay rights and others. But in terms of the environment and in terms of climate change, which now going back to my story, even though I came into it 
as more of a patriotic geopolitical reason, you know, quickly climate change became even the bigger thing for me. And now, you know, it is the prime motivation. Like I want my work life to be through the prism of sports, if, if it can be to, to do even a small part to get us away from the carbon train wreck we're headed for. So sports has the power to play a role in the environmental fight, in the climate change fight. And so far, it hasn't done that on the big stage level, reaching millions and millions of fans. However, the part that they are doing is that the games are greening, and we can talk about that. So on the very first level, stadiums, uh, arenas, events like marathons have for almost a decade and really ramping up even more in the last couple of years have been doing incredible things on the greening stage. It's just that fans don't really know about it yet for the most part. Is it because they're not telling the story well? Is that where you come in to help them do that better? Because I know when we talked, like it made total sense that some of these things are happening, but nobody knows about it. That's not what you associate sports and games and, you know, but, but it should be, especially in today's world, that's a really great story to tell. I mean, it's, it's a great PR move. It's great. Everything like it's good for everybody to know that, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, there are many answers to that question, but before getting to that, so the way I the way I look at it, and I write about this in the blog a lot, I kind of look at the green sports world over the last, say, 15 years or so, since it, 10, 15 years since it started, as, you know, green sports 1.0, the greening of the games themselves, meaning, you know, lead certified stadiums, solar on site, even wind on site at stadiums, uh, switching to LED lighting, what they call zero waste games. You can claim that you're zero waste if you divert 90% or more of waste from landfill. Um, And with the advent of advanced recycling and also composting either on site or taking food waste to be composted, uh, a number of teams have achieved this. Uh, Smart grid at stadiums having the stadium through a, you know, solar hitched up to a battery become a source for power uh, when it's needed by the grid or a source for storage when the grid is producing too much power and stadiums being sited much more, you know, the trend has been to site them, you know, towards the, in the urban core close to mass transit Whereas in the 70s and 80s, many stadiums were built in the suburban areas where you could only get there by car. So there's all these things that are happening. And, and then let's even add the greening of college sports, which you, you add on to what I've just talked to talked about. You have a cadre of, of idealistic students who are studying sustainability and they are getting involved. So all of that, green sports 1.0, has been happening and I think is kind of a mature thing. But Green Sports 2.0, which I would say, I don't know when it started, but it's in its early days, we're kind of in a transition phase. Green Sports 2.0 is engaging fans and other stakeholders in the environmental uh, 
good works of the teams and the leagues, and then also trying to activate them on things like climate change. Maybe the climate change piece is 3.0. I don't know. But you get the idea. No, I do. Case in point, uh, Real Madrid, which is you know one of the most popular by far soccer clubs in the world, they just released their 2018-2019 third kit, uh, which is made, I think, entirely of recycling recycled ocean waste. Yep. Yeah, so here's a jersey that's going to go out. I mean, millions of fans are going to buy this. They buy it every year, right? Yep. And it's made entirely of ocean waste. And so now... Uh, that's that 2.0 you're talking about. So it's been going on. And now they're saying, hey, we want you in on this. We're going to, you know, you're going to buy this, you know, this third kit anyway. So why don't we make it out of, you know, entirely out of recycled ocean waste? Those are beautiful ways of bringing your fans and all the people that love what you do into this conversation, correct? That's right. That's right. And then the idea is, wow, okay, I bought that shirt that's made of, uh, plastic ocean waste, where can I get other shirts like that? Yep. So that's a great example. In Atlanta, the Green Sports Alliance every year has a a summit every June, and they had their 2018 summit, which I believe was their eighth annual, at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which is the home of the Atlanta Falcons of the NFL and Atlanta United of MLS. And it's the first lead platinum pro stadium in the world. Wow. And let me tell you, so I, I was there. It is it is incredible um, from the on-site solar to these gigantic water, these cisterns that collect rainwater that are then used for brown water uses within the stadium, mitigate against potential drought at different times, uh, electric vehicle charging stations, etc. You know, they were very smart. Many stadiums put solar on the roof, which is great in its own right. But the thing is, you can't really see it. So here what they did was they uh, part of the solar panel installation. The solar installation was on top of a of a parking garage. So the the fans are are walking right past it. Yeah. And, you know, this is the stadium that's the the Super Bowl is going to be played there in February. Now, the the Green Sports 2.0 evocation extension of this that I want to see is whoever's broadcasting that Super Bowl, I believe it's CBS. I want to see or hear Jim Nance say, hello, friends. We are here at the lead platinum, you know, Mercedes-Benz Stadium for Super Bowl 53. That'd be amazing. I mean, that's the kind of thing that we need to see more of. I don't know if you watched you say you don't watch sports, the, the uh, 2016 uh, Rio Olympics opening ceremonies um, on NBC. I so there you had a seven-minute vignette you know, as part of the opening ceremonies about climate change. That was seen by worldwide estimated a billion people. Yeah, it's insane. You know, that is the biggest audience for any climate change message that's ever been. I mean, you know, an inconvenient truth was seen by a fraction of that, a small fraction of that number of people. Um, So this is what needs to happen more. You know, it shouldn't be that I can cite the only example of that. But right now, that's the only example. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully for the Super Bowl that that will change because that's a perfect opportunity. Again, you know, 
tens of millions of people watching that that will get curious and say, what does lead platinum mean? Right. You know, maybe they've never even heard of that before. Right. They're going to Google that on their phone, which they inevitably have in their hands. And boom, they start, you know, thinking through that. Yeah. For the next few weeks, I'm beyond thrilled to partner with my friends at Goodwill Co. As you know, I'm very picky about who I partner with, but this was an easy one, honestly. Billions of plastic toothbrushes are bought, used, and thrown away each year only to end up in some landfill. The mission of Goodwill Co. is to create 100% natural, subscription-based, sustainable products, systems, and technologies that raise environmental awareness and empower people to make choices that help protect and preserve the planet today. Their products are 100% biodegradable and 100% compostable. You can buy their toothbrushes, their toothpaste, or their floss as a one-time purchase, or you can sign up for their amazing subscription service. Also, you need to check out and pre-order B, the world's first battery-free, electricity-free powered toothbrush. That's right, they created and have patented an amazing technology that requires no batteries or electricity. Pre-order now and you'll get yours once they ship in early January of 2019. Listen up, y'all. I have an exclusive deal for our Let's Give a Damn listeners. Go to thegoodwellcompany.com and use the discount code DAM in all caps, D-A-M-N in all caps, and you'll get 10% off a one-time purchase or 15% off if you sign up for a subscription. But both discounts apply only on first purchase only. Remember, use the code DAM in all caps when you check out to get this special deal. Through and through, Goodwill Co. is focused on making amazing products and honoring the environment in the process, and I love them for it. Don't miss out on this super deal, friends. Okay, back to my conversation with Lou Blaustein. Let's talk in climate change and environmentalism real quickly for a second. I know we've been doing that, but just let's take a different direction for a second. Our current political administration, um, almost, it seems like almost everybody just flat out denies that climate change is happening in one way, in, in most ways, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a bizarre world. It's very uh, bizarre. It's very bizarre. So for those that aren't in this conversation, maybe they haven't crafted uh, really great uh, messaging or languages or ideas for how to communicate this and how to, you know, we can, we need to start doing stuff, right? Like you said, I mean, you've been doing it for, you know, well over a decade, you know, with the, the hybrid car and the light bulbs, there are things we can do, right? Like we've taken, you know, plastic out of our home and we use metal straws and we use, you know, all these things, uh, biodegradable, uh, toothbrushes, everything. Like we're trying to do that in our home as well. So we, there are things we can do, but what about things that we can say? What are some ways that we can communicate to people that aren't for some odd reason, aren't convinced that we are in a climate crisis that if we don't pay attention to it, like to be this blunt, we're fucked, right? right. Like we are, we're, we are hurting ourselves so, so much on a daily basis in the, in the things that we do. So how can we communicate that better? Okay. Well, first I'm going to go uh, back to one of the things you were saying uh, earlier before you, as you led into that question, which is, you know, what people do and, and uh, personal virtue on environment is great. You know, eat less meat is I think probably in terms of the direct environmental thing you can do the most important. If you can, yes. if you eat meat four days a week, 
eat it three days a week. I'm not saying you have to be a vegetarian or close to it or vegan. I mean, if you want to go that route, you'll probably be healthier and that's great. But if we have a mass movement away from meat eating, that's going to help mitigate against the mass growth of meat eating in places that are going from the 19th century to the 21st century in a nanosecond like India and China. Because the greenhouse gas emissions that are caused by industrial meat production are massive. And so that is a huge thing that individuals can do. But to me, the most important thing and, you know, more important than even uh, eating less meat, the most important thing people can do is vote for candidates that are serious about taking on climate change. Because the micro things that we do will have a relatively small effect. To really make the changes that are needed, there has to be change at the policy level. And even if you're cynical, even if you're turned off by politics before, and that turnoff happened before the current president came into office or has been exacerbated because the current president is in office, it doesn't matter. You have to put that on the side. And you have to research the candidates who really are talking sense on climate and vote for them. Vote for the climate candidate in your district, in your in, if it's a U.S. Senate race, governor, you know, local, it doesn't matter. That is the most important thing you can do. Now, to your other question um, about talking to people who are skeptics, I mean, they're you know, there are certain people, a, a certain cadre of that level of, of, of deniers or skeptics that you're never going to convince. You know, um, if they get their news from Fox News, you're not going to convince them. And, and I actually think it just becomes a waste of time. But if there are people who really are, you know, on the fence, or I think an even more important category are people who actually think and know intellectually and intuitively that climate change is happening and that humans are the main, are the cause, uh, but they're not, it's not rising to the top of the issues they care about. They're not making those voting decisions. They're not making those individual choices. In other words, people who are already in, but they're not doing anything about it. Those are the people I think that are the most important to talk to. And there you need to communicate the urgency. Because I think the, the biggest problem with climate change as an issue, right, is that the perception and the reality to an extent is that it's something that your grandkids' grandkids are going to have to deal with. And you can't really care about that. I mean, you can in, you know, in kind of some sort of ethereal way, but, you know, in reality, God love my grandkids' grandkids, but they'll have to figure it out. But the truth is, it's happening now, and the effects are massive now, both, and it's not only to polar bears, it's not only in places like the developing world where we can watch, we watch a news story on TV about extreme weather and its effects in places like sub-Saharan Africa or whatever, but it's actually happening here. And... So you first spend some time on the now of it. So it's a now problem for this generation. And 
the next generation, which, you know, kids, you know, adults, kids, and their kids right now, boom, it's happening. Okay. That's the first thing. The second thing that makes people not take action is that they think that there is nothing that can be done, that the problem is so vast or the problems caused by it are so vast that it's just not solvable. And that is also not true. Uh, in fact, very not true. The solutions are out there. Um, and from energy efficiency, renewable energy, going to scale, uh, switching from coal to natural gas and now natural gas to renewables, et cetera, et cetera. The solutions are out there. We just have to have, as I was re referencing earlier, the political will to make the choices that will uh, allow these technologies uh, that can replace fossil fuels scale quickly enough so that we can avoid the worst of it. And the, the, the way I frame it when I talk to people about it is I say, you know, this problem is so massive, but the flip side of problems, for every problem, there are solutions. And people who solve things make good livings. They own companies or they're employees of companies that make, uh, you know, wind turbines or a smart grid or storage batteries or uh, energy efficiency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so how cool would it be to be able to, you know, work on or invest in or be a part of in some way technologies that will give you, you know, make you a living. And by the way, save humanity and other life forms. It seems to me like a great deal. And this is how I talk about it. It's the greatest opportunity facing humanity right now. If you think the internet was big, the internet revolution and what it's wrought in terms of new companies and all the benefits, and there are problems of course, but you know, changing the way we generate and use energy on a mass scale dwarfs the internet. It's the biggest opportunity out there. And do we in the United States want to seed those, you know, making good on those opportunities to places like China or Denmark or wherever else they're leading on renewables and carbon pricing and all that? I mean, if we want to be in decline, we would. But it doesn't seem to me like a good way to be. Yeah. Yeah, man, so much there. I'm going to have to, there was so much there, but uh, I'll let everyone, you know, parse through that themselves. But I want to just highlight one thing you said way back at the beginning, vote people. I mean, seriously, there are so many things we can do in our personal lives and our public lives with our neighbors, friends and community, but vote. Um, we have the opportunity to change this even in the next few months in these upcoming midterms. Like there are so many key, you know, positions up for grabs. And we can do this. We, we really can. And so I'm excited for what's possible. I think one of the positive things that have come out of this current administration is a bunch of pissed off people that aren't willing to just stay pissed off. They want to do something about it, right? And so they've heard, you know, they've seen our president, you know, make the joke about his, you know, his aerosol hairspray joke about how they think this is messing up the earth, blah, blah, blah. And he just makes, he makes jokes about it. Well, we can, we can do something about that. We, we, we still have that power. And so 
Um, let's get out and vote. Just to riff on what you were just saying, you know, the, the current president says that he's a shrewd businessman. If he was a shrewd businessman, a shrewd businessman would not be doubling down on yesterday's technology, coal. Seriously. And making it harder for today's slash tomorrow's technology, renewables, to take hold and to, to make the United States the leader in this business in the same way it was as it related to the internet. To me, a business president, that's what he'd be doing. He'd be saying, coal, we gotta, we gotta wind down. We gotta retrain the coal workers and, and, and compensate them. We can't leave them behind, but this is not tenable anymore. It's untenable. And what we need to do is shift, a massive shift, like the Marshall Plan after, in World War II, post-World War II, it really needs that kind of investment, that kind of commitment from the citizenry all the way up to the top to make this move in the direction that it needs to be made at the speed it needs to be made. Uh, we're going to switch gears here as we begin to land this uh, this plane. You've done some really beautiful, intriguing things in your life. Um, and so what I want to do for this next minute or two is can you share, let's just go general. We're not going to go specific with sports or whatever. Can you just share some general pieces of wisdom? You know, everyone listening, they're either damn givers or want to be a damn giver. They want to make an impact on their world uh, with their life, right? And so they're listening to this, trying to glean wisdom and trying to learn these stories and get inspired, right? And so just give some general one or two or three pieces of advice, just very general, but how would you encourage people right now today listening, how would you encourage them to stop making excuses and to begin giving a damn today, like literally today as they're listening? I mean, for me, like I said, it, it took this kind of epic tragedy of 9-11 to, to get me to kind of a more, it sounds really hokey, purpose-driven work life. Uh, it's not for everybody, but... What I would say going, what I will say, and I don't know if it's advice, but I would say it's if you want to feel good about trying to solve the problems that you either see in the media or complain about, the best way to do it is to do something and to get active. And voting is one. If you are interested in being a part of uh, the climate change fighting movement, I can suggest two organizations that your listeners would, I think, enjoy if they're interested in this, being a part of and benefit from tremendously. One is the Climate Reality Project, which was developed or founded by uh, uh, former Vice President Al Gore, obviously the, the guy who won the Nobel Peace Prize and an Oscar for An Inconvenient Truth. And he realized that, you know, his messaging is coming from a guy who's up on high. He almost was president. And he also knows he's a polarizing figure, but he mm -hmm. does what he does. And he's amazing. But he, he realized that for the mass mobilization of people that are, is needed to demand change on this issue and on, uh, uh, on things like getting rid of coal or, or, winding down coal and other fossil fuel oil and, and gas and switching to renewables is going to take a huge mass of people. And the way to get those people engaged is through friends and neighbors. So he created the climate reality project, I would say about 11 years ago. 
And it basically takes regular folks, you and me, and he, literally, Al Gore, will train you uh, to give the slideshow that is at the heart of An Inconvenient Truth and the movie that followed An Inconvenient Sequel in your communities. So I went and got trained in 2012 in San Francisco with a thousand other people and two days and Al Gore spoke to us for eight hours and took us slide by slide how to present it. It was, and you're thinking, oh, that's got to be dull. It was so cool. It was I'm incredible. Sure it was fascinating. Yeah. I only looked at my ESPN Sports Center app once for eight hours. It was unbelievable. <laughs> it was unbelievable. The record, huh? Yeah. So now, and since then, I've given about 30, 35 presentations to uh, church groups, synagogues, schools, uh, businesses, social groups, alumni groups. Uh, and I think it's really honed my climate communication skills for my uh, consulting work as well. That's one. Um, and the other, if you, if you're more into, okay, well, this is education and building grassroots climate reality is education and building grassroots, um, action on climate. Another different approach is, but related is citizens climate lobby. And what they do is they lobby members of Congress, both parties, both every office, House and Senate, on behalf of a carbon price, a revenue neutral uh, carbon fee and dividend, which I won't get into the weeds of that. But basically the idea is if you put a price on carbon, um, that's going to make carbon-based products uh, more expensive and it's going to make non-carbon products uh, relatively less expensive and get more investment in in those and the market will move us to a, a lower in carbon intensity uh, world faster that way. So in any case, CCL or Citizens Climate Lobby, we go to DC, we lobby members of Congress, every office in the House almost and every Senate office, and then we do it at the state level and even at the lo- local level for carbon pricing. So those two groups, I couldn't recommend highly enough. Yeah, those are those are great. I love the the, the tangible nature of your advice, right? And so um, I will definitely, I'll link to those in the show notes. Um, great advice. Uh, here's my penultimate question for you, Lou. It's got a little bit of a, a hypothetical nature to it. Uh, the not hypothetical part is that someday you're going to die. Hopefully it's still many, many years off, but we're all going to die. You're going to die, right? And in that room... At your, you know, funeral or memorial, all your family, your friends, people that have loved you and been affected by your work, and uh, they're all there to celebrate and mourn your life. And the hypothetical part is that I've been asked to give your eulogy. And so as I stand up there to speak to your friends and family and all the people that love and admire you about your life and legacy, what do you hope would come out of my mouth on that day? That I did what I could or most of what I could towards my mission of getting us to slow down the carbon train wreck that we're headed towards. I, I don't think I said that right, but you know what I mean? No, that I do. I did a good chunk of what I, what I set out to in that with, with that mission in mind and that I inspired other people to do the same. I love that because the essence of what you just communicated is I did my part, right? Which right. is what I think so many people they fail to do 
I really believe that. Like if we all, we can fix a lot of this stuff. We really, really can, friends. We can fix a lot of the things that we hate and don't like and want to see change if we all do our part. It takes all of us coming together. And I actually think that I got to this a little bit ahead of the curve so that I think people who are coming into it now through, you know, through various parts of the, you know, environmental world, the climate change world, that it's actually going to be much better for the generation coming up, the millennials, which sounds cliche, the Gen Z, whatever is after that, yep. you know, to make a career of the climate change fight because you're going to make money doing it. You might make more than I've made, you know, and financial success is, is, is important for sure. But, you know, if you keep that mindset of, of a similar mission to what I described and you can make a living doing it, man, that seems like a good way to, to live. I love it. I love it. Lou, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It was great. Dear friends, thanks a ton for tuning into my conversation with Lou Blaustein today on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I hope you feel encouraged and inspired to think more deeply about the products you use, the things you throw away, your carbon footprint, etc. Speaking of being more intentional about the products we use, don't forget to head to thegoodwellcompany.com and use the code DAMN in all caps at checkout for your incredible discount. Per usual, show notes for this conversation and all the others can be found at podcast.letsgiveadam.com. That's podcast.letsgiveadam.com. This podcast, as always, was edited by the amazing Chad Snavely. We have an incredible conversation with Tunde Wei coming at you next week. You won't want to miss it. Same day, same time next week. See you then, friends. Thank you.